Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You guys can be seated. <laughs> Brian's nervous because I get to introduce him. <laughs> surprise, surprise. One of Brian's favorite stories to tell is uh, his first Sunday at church. Uh, first or second Sunday at church, I walked up to him and I'm like, man, I'm so glad you and Linda are joining us. Like, you guys bring so much diversity to our church family. And he was like, I'm a white guy. How am I bringing diversity? And he was like, oh, you mean because I'm old. And I was like, no, I mean because you're older. You're older than me. That's what I mean. Um, our church from the beginning has had a desire to raise up leaders. And we've done certain things um, like leadership cohorts in which we go through God's word and we study books on theology and Christian living. Um, and Brian has been along that journey with us. But the funny thing about Brian is that I don't really feel like he, there was much raising up to do. Brian and both Linda came to our church as natural leaders, um, both leading from the front and leading quietly. Um, Brian and Linda are the kind of individuals, you guys probably know this, uh, and that's the funny thing is, is like I don't even have to introduce him to you. Half of you are related to him. <laughs> And the other half, you've been blessed by him. Brian and Linda are the kind of people when they're like, I'm going to be praying for you. They're like one of the few that actually legit starts praying for you. Like I've seen him put in his phone reminders to pray and he'll text message me. I know that when, when new guys will come to the church, no matter their age, if they're 21 or 51, like Brian is one of the first ones to invite them out to lunch. Both Brian and Linda have just done a fantastic job of leading us um, as being members of our church. And today we are blessed and honored for him to be able to lead us through the preaching and teaching in God's word. And so, man, I'm, I'm just super thankful for your time in prayer um, and your and your just your commitment to his word to open it up for us. Well, thank so, you, Oscar. And uh, one embarrassing, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was getting worried there because Chris said I had to keep this under 40 minutes and I hope you're not cutting into my time. <laughs> So before we start, if you don't mind, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, this is your church. This is your house, but the walls are not important. It's the people that make this up. And so, Father, as we go forward with this message today, my prayer is that uh, in me you can tap into a humility that I have a hard time tapping into sometimes and that these words are tr truly yours. And so, Father, I'm asking for the Holy Spirit to be here in each and every one of us. And those of you that don't know you, I just ask that they have a new feeling. And if they have that, they recognize that there's something different about them and that they know who to seek out and discuss those feelings with so that they continue to grow in their relationship with you. With Jesus, we lift this up in your name, amen. So there's a couple of things I wanna start with. First off, it was really sweet having Kelsey Post read that. <laughs> And I'll, I'll tell you, I didn't plan on talking about this at all because I didn't know who was reading that, but Kelsey has been in my life probably since she was about five or six years old. So her real name is Kelsey Clark. Sorry, Logan. But uh, 
So it was just really, really beautiful. So thank you, Kelsey, for, for being a part of, of this day. But after she read that, I would imagine a few of you are thinking, why this psalm? Why, why in the world this psalm does just, there's no joy in there, it sounds ugly, it sounds um, sad, so what do we do with this? And well, there's, there's the right pious answer, and that's because all scripture is important and God-breathed. But then there's also an answer that's even more personal to me. And so I'm, I'm hoping I can paint a picture of why that psalm. And that picture starts with a few years ago when Linda and I were asked to go to Israel with some good friends of ours. The pastor in the group, we were a group of 11, so we were small. The pastor in the group asked us all to read a book prior to going to Israel on the Psalms of Ascent. And that was a term, while vaguely familiar to me, I really didn't know what it was. And honestly, when I got to Israel, I was very disappointed I'd spent so much time reading it. And the reason I was disappointed in it is because I got there, and I'm a bit of a history nerd like my friend Dan here, and I really wanted to know so much about history that was staring me right in the face, and the Psalms of Ascent, in my mind at least, didn't, didn't reach that. But I'm happy to tell you that I was wrong in my initial assessment, as I so often am. Don't, don't tell my kids I admitted to that. Um, but ultimately, um, what happened is it all changed on day three. And day three is when we as a group went to a mountain called Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is also known as the Mount of Transfiguration. Sorry about the feedback. Um, so you might remember that as the place where Jesus revealed his glory to Peter, James, and John in Matthew 17, verses 2 and 3. And like magic, there they are. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Got it? So this is Jesus where he takes some of his most trusted friends up the mountain and allows them to see him talking to Moses and Elijah who have since are no longer living with us. And what he's doing there is he's preparing himself and his disciples for his coming death and resurrection, but they just can't fathom it in that moment. So that's the mountain. Some prominent features of this mountain are it's the only one around for some distance. It's kind of a strange looking mountain. It looks like this big thing in the middle of a valley. Um, it's very steep. It's got a one lane road that winds around it at a very steep ascent. And it's got one lane or it's got turnouts, it's dirt and on and on and on. But because of this, you're not allowed to drive your own car to the top of that mountain. So what you have to do is you have to hail one of the local taxis and the driver will take you up this mountain at breakneck speed. Ask me how I know. So. You can also get up the mountain another way, and you can walk. And that's what Jesus and his disciples would have done. They would have walked up that mountain. And when you see it, trust me, it's not an easy walk. I remember that day being oppressively hot and even being maybe a little cranky inside. Um, but wanting to be like Jesus, you can guess how we got up the mountain. That's right, we took the taxi. <laughs> hey, I got a laugh, great. Um, so as we're climbing the mountain in the taxi, though, the thing that's remarkable about that in that moment was as we're going up, the taxi driver has to continue to pull over and jog around these groups of people. And these groups of people um, were clustered in, in groups of women and groups of men. And the groups of women were in these white, gauzy, 
like dresses and clothes with a little splash of color here and there. Uh, and the men were dressed in all black with big, huge gold crosses around their necks. Um, do I have a slide? Nope. Hey, there it is. So this is, this is the guy version of what we're talking about here. And I, I did not understand his name, although Joey, the pastor there, and I tried to have a conversation with him, but he was happy to, to, to pose with us. And what he is, is he's an Ethiopian brother in the Lord. So the men and women like him are Coptic Christians from Ethiopia. And they make this journey to Israel as part of their pilgrimage, if you will. And they also believe that they're descendants of the Ethiopian church, if you remember from Acts 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized by Philip. So that's them. They're, as you can tell, he's no spring chicken. He might even have a couple of years on me. Um, most of the men and women we saw going up this mountain were in their 50s or later. Um, but as they were going up, they had shunned air conditioning, they had shunned the easy path of cars, and they were going up and they were singing. And as our taxi would go by each group, we could hear them singing a different portion of something in a language that we couldn't understand. And so looking back, because I wasn't sharp enough in the moment to understand what was going on, what they were probably doing was singing the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalm 120, the very beginning of the Psalms of Ascent. So because of all that, when Chris asked me to pick a psalm, any psalm, there's quite a few to choose from if you haven't looked, this is the one that was impressed on my heart and my mind. And even though it was a difficult one and a challenging one and I had no idea what I was going to do with it, this is the one that I really wanted to teach and talk about today. So here we are. So I'm just curious, how many of you out there have even heard the term Psalms of Ascent? I've got a few. Nice. Or maybe you've seen that phrase at the top of the 15 Psalms that these are part of. So it's Psalms 120 through 134. Um, these psalms would have had very important meaning for the Jews as they journeyed to Jerusalem. And the Jews would have started singing them as they got to the base of the mountain that, is the, uh, that, sits, uh, that Jerusalem sits on top of. They made a pilgrimage there three times a year for Passover, which we now call Easter in the spring, for Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks in the summer, and Tabernacles or the Feast of Harvest in the fall. And be, they were doing this because they were be, being obedient to Scripture where in Deuteronomy 16, 16, it tells them to make this pilgrimage. The group of Psalms begins in 120 with them at war. So what Kelsey read to you was essentially a lament about being in war and being surrounded by hostile enemies. And it ends with them being blessed just 15 short Psalms later in Psalm 134, being blessed in the temple. They're very short. As a matter of fact, I timed myself and it took seven minutes to read all 15 Psalms. So I'm challenging all of you to read them and read them in context of what we're going to talk about today. Um, I'm also hoping that when you read them, that you'll read them looking forward through any troubles you might be facing in the moment and knowing that God will pull you through that. And when you're in times of joy, when everything seems to be going well in your life, I'm hoping that you can look backward at these same songs and recognize that through your faithfulness and through God's love, He's the one that brought you through them. <sighs> Has anybody here in their life ever felt like God was not in control? Like things were just spiraling and things aren't going well? Or maybe you were out of control and didn't know what to do with it? 
That's what these psalms are for. They're a centering moment, and they're here to help. So that book that Joey, the pastor, had me read was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And a quote from that book says, Christians will recognize. Now let me pause you all just a moment here. And so if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if Christianity is something that that centers you, that, that you're a follower of, this should make you pause right here and think. Again, Peterson says, Christians will recognize how appropriately these psalms may be sung between the times, between the times we leave the world's environment and arrive at the Spirit's assembly, between the time we leave sin and arrive at holiness, between the time we leave home on Sunday morning and arrive in church with the company of God's people, between the time we leave the works of law and arrive at justification by faith. These are songs of transition that lead us in and to Jesus Christ. So let's break that down a little. What that tells me is I am this, but I'm on my way to becoming that. So these are a transitional journey that the Jews would have taken and that God has left in his holy scripture because he wants you to continue to turn back to those, recognizing that you are on a transitional journey in your life. These Psalms, let's also call them singing prayers because that's really what they are, can be used to lift spirits and help you get through tough days They're a metaphor for what it looks like some days to live the Christian life, to be a disciple of Jesus, and on that path to discipleship. The Psalms are there for us when things are physically tough, like walking up a hill, as my Ethiopian friend and his uh, buddies were doing, or maybe you're facing a personal illness. These Psalms are there for us when we need emotional toughness in our life, a broken heart or friend trouble or maybe you've had some significant disappointment at some area of your life that you didn't anticipate. And these Psalms are also there for us to help us be intellectually tough. Has anybody here ever had a crisis of faith? I know I have. It's not an uncommon common thing on your Christian walk. So another way to look at this, for me at least, and this is something that Linda taught me, is don't fear the clouds. If while standing at the bottom of the mountain, you could see the top with its craggy and cold peaks, that view might prevent you from even taking the first step of that journey. But maybe the clouds, the things that by obscuring your vision are the things that actually sustain you. Above the clouds, the sun is always shining, meaning God is always there. And knowing that God is with you should give you confidence and courage to go forward. So it's a little bit like letting that surgeon cut deeply into your body, but he's doing it so that he can help heal you and get you better. It's a difficult first step, but it's an important step. So we didn't have time. When I first wrote this, I was going to take you through all 15. (laughs) That's like a, I don't know, months-long thing. Um, Even though it only takes seven minutes to read, so please read them. Um, But so when I went through them, here are some things I wanted you to get out of them. First off, with 120, we see lament. And if lament is not a term that we use very often or is not familiar to you, lament is a deep, deep regret or mourning. It's, it's like crying out into the middle of the night, saying, I have made a terrible mistake. You also see in these Psalms peace. You see protection. You see family and community and how they impact each other. You see redemption. Hopefully you'll see faithfulness. And I'm sure at the end you'll see blessing. So there are three primary truths here that we want to touch on. The first is, Life will have challenges. Yes, friends, life is going to challenge you. 
And I can tell you from experience, the longer you live, the more opportunities and the better the odds are going to be that you're going to have difficulty. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us himself in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That right there is a great summation of the Psalms of Ascent. No one can cut to the chase like Jesus. That's pretty much the mic drop moment right there for the God-man reference these Psalms. He tells us that we're going to have tough times. He all but guarantees it. But he also tells us that if we turn to him, he'll get through it with us because in him there is peace. So the Psalms of Ascent, if you will, start off like we just saw, like a Hollywood blockbuster. Um, The movie finally starts. The theme music starts pumping in your ears. The camera's up close on something that you can't quite figure out. And as it begins to zoom, you recognize Ethan Hawke from Mission Impossible or John Wick from John Wick. As the camera zooms slowly back, you realize our hero is in trouble. It's big trouble. And he's high on a ledge, barely holding on. There's no way he can get out of this jam. If you believe that, he can get out of the jam. If you believe he can get out of the jam, it's because you have faith in Ethan or John, and also because the movie's just getting started, and we're not fools to spend $15 on a three-minute movie. But it's grabbed your attention, hopefully, in a way, and you probably can't wait to see how they're going to escape. That's Psalm 120. It's an ancient version of a Hollywood blockbuster. When it starts, in my distress, I called out to the Lord. So when you have troubles or distress, as it says here, where's the first place you might turn? Is it a friend or a parent? Is it maybe to your own power, whatever that is? Maybe the author's onto something here when he leaves us this clue that the first place he turns is to the Lord. The second thing I want you to see is that the church is called to gather and be unified. Troubles are easier to face with others alongside you. There's an old saying that goes, problems shared or problems halved. And as you carry that load uphill and take that first difficult step, isn't it easier when you have someone with you to help you carry that load? So what's the, there's another saying like that. Maybe it's misery loves company. So by all means, be with company, and that's what we do here at church. It's not a perfect equivalence, this story, but when Linda and I were younger, we always looked forward to family road trips. And since my three kids are here, they might resonate with this. <clears throat> the worst part for me as the dad was the first five minutes when somebody said, Dad, are we there yet? Right? We can all identify with that, I hope. The kids are confined in their car seats. Their little bodies wanting to move. They don't understand why they have to be restrained. And I don't like when people act out. I mean, I try to hide it well, but my kids will tell you stories after church. I don't. And so the disciplinarian in me would become frustrated and bark commands. But honestly, that would often make things worse. Um, However, Linda, the kind-hearted, I'll call her, would engage the kids with distractions like games or even better singing. Think Wheels on the Bus or whatever songs were going on at that time. Um, And as we got closer and closer to the destination, the kids' wiggles would actually get worse. But Linda would just enhance the singing and make it louder. And through Linda's singing with them, their spirits were lifted, their discomfort would melt away. Next thing you know, we'd arrived, and instead of a bunch of cranky kids, we were all so excited to finally be there. 
That for me is a summation of the Psalms of Ascent. And that's also a summation of being together. Gathering together in fellowship can be powerful like that singing in the car. The power to overcome and even make you forget when you're uncomfortable or fearful. Um, Another example for me is I have a a singing voice that hopefully only Linda has truly heard. And candidly, she doesn't want to hear it again. We, some people call it karaoke, she calls it karaoke. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's me. But there's something that happens at church when I'm able to drown my poor singing voice amongst the voices of so many beautiful singing voices. And suddenly I become, instead of something ugly, I become something beautiful. The beauty of the words and the melody carry away And honestly, that's because I have a church family and a church community. Have you ever asked yourself, why is that? Why do singing hymns lift our spirits? Because I don't know about you guys, but some of my worst moments are on my drive to church, as Eugene Peterson pointed out in that transition. But some of my best moments are when I was coming home from that same service I didn't really want to go to. A.W. Tozer quotes... Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are atom- automatically tuned to each other? They're of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So I know that's a little bit of a of a mouthful there, but don't miss the point that Tozer is making. The tuning fork here, the primary piano, is the standard in the way that God is our standard. All of us tuned to the same fork help those of us without natural tuning, here's truly, or in times when we're weak, become better. Focusing on that same fork brings us together in a way that we as individuals can't do it. That's a big deal and should really resonate with us, especially when we realize the true tuning fork in our lives is Jesus. When someone says, for instance, that they're doing church online, and I'm not talking about people with health reasons, I'm just talking about people who've decided to no longer go to church, or somebody else pulls out that old verse where two or more are gathered and using it, uses it incorrectly as a reason not to attend, that's not what Scripture tells us. It tells us that the gathering of saints under good teaching will make sure we are tuned to God, the true tuning fork, and not something false. We're meant to be together and hold each other accountable in a way that makes everyone's attendance important. As a matter of fact, in the same Psalms of Ascent, the author tells us in Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Dwell and unity. Those words are intentional, so please don't miss them. As a matter of fact, cling to them. The community here is of one mind. They're in this together, and they're not just passing through. They're committed. I think we instantly understand the word unity, but I do get concerned a little bit about dwell. Are we paying attention to that word in our breakneck culture? How many of you truly sit and dwell on God's words? How many of you do it together in unity? Cue advertisement for home group. I meant to read that, that's okay. <clears throat> so the third thing I, um, theme in here is that God will never abandon us. And this is the tough part for a lot of people. I don't know what his plans are for you but I do know that they're for his glory and that he loves you and that this life is temporary. Some of us might be in pain right now, or maybe we'll be in pain tomorrow and don't even know it yet. And if that's you, 
I want you to know I'm very, very sorry, but it's not the end of the story. I most likely can't fix what ails you, but God can. I'm not suggesting he's going to do it on your timing, but if you trust him and follow him, he will do it at just the right time. I hit the wrong button here. <laughs> Matthew 28:20 says, "Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Do you know who said this? Jesus said this. Jesus who sought out the broken and lifted them up in challenging times. The same Jesus who cried out in anguish as he prays to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging, asking to be delivered. The same Jesus who was not delivered in that moment from his anguish and was still tortured and killed on a cross. Yet, even though he knew his fate, he knew his embarrassment and agony, he went obediently. He trusted the Father and knew it would be for the Father's glory. So I ask you, in your daily walk, are you able to act with the knowledge that Jesus will be with you always to the end of the age? As we continue to dig into 120, when you do, imagine the long trek up the hill, trek up the hill, and the joyous party at the temple when they finally get there. Imagine that Jesus made this journey as a child. We learned that in Luke when on the way home from this journey, he got lost and his parents found him in the temple. Imagine this journey as an adult leading his disciples up that mountain. Imagine his thoughts. He would have known that this was his final ascent, wouldn't he? How would these prayers to his father felt in that final ascent? Would they have been different? Would they, would they have been agonizing? How about personally when you start a, a difficult journey or even find yourself already on one? Are you able to turn to God and trust him? So let's dig in. Verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. The author here is fearful. In my distress. But he's also wise. I called to the Lord. The Lord is ever faithful and ever present, always waiting for you to go to him. This first stanza is setting the tone. Remember, they sang this out for the first time after many days' journey across an unforgiving desert. And they get to the base of that mountain. They can see Jerusalem at the top of the hill, yet they're at the base. And they have to now, after already being exhausted and cranky, start climbing that mountain. So this is where Psalm 120 gets started. Have you ever been afraid? Like, I mean really afraid. Like the fear is so great you can't think straight. There's another saying called frozen with fear, right? So remember when you're young, and the shadows on your wall maybe morphed into something horrific? Or currently as an adult, you're desperately seeking your loved one and he or she's not calling you back and they are hours overdue. Now how about when you're that child again and you call out and you ask for help and your mom or your dad says, it's okay, honey, I'm right here. When that happens, my heart leaps for joy. And that's what God's asking us to do here. He's asking you to call out to him, and when you do, his heart will leap with joy. Look at that verse again. He answered me. Isn't that beautiful? It's his assurance that maybe not on our timing, but on his, things are going to be okay. I can relate as a father. Got my kids all over the audience here. Thank you. 
I'm not excited when they call me with sad things. I'm not. I don't like it at all. But I want them to because I'm honored. Because I want to be a part of that problem to come alongside and help them get through it. So I think for me, God is like that. He's honored when we cry out to him for help. So I'm asking you, shouldn't he be your go-to God as well? Verse 2 and 3. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Deliver me. It's like, get me out of here, right? So who do we think the author's talking about here? Maybe it's a friend that's betrayed him. Does anyone in here have a friend that's ever hurt your feelings, betrayed you, maybe lied to you in a way that was completely unnecessary? It hurts a lot. I know it from personal experience. And again, I'm sorry. I don't want that for you and neither does God. Maybe he's talking about culture. Culture can be great, right? We talked about Mission Impossible movies, love them. But culture can also be destructive. And currently we're living in what I would call a gossip culture. Think InstaFace or TikMok or some of those other things. My kids all laughed. Thanks, guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, think about those things. And really, oftentimes what we see in them is that our lives are perfect and your lives are, well, less than perfect. And so I would challenge you, be careful with that. If I post something on social media that tarnishes someone else and is untrue, might not that be bearing a false witness? Does it matter if they're already famous or a politician? Shouldn't we be showing kindness and compassion to the other? Shouldn't we be loving our friend, our enemy? Scripture also calls us to be salt and light, right? So how does slander work as salt and light? A lot of people think that salt is only used as a purifying agent. And it is a purifying agent, and it's good. But if we throw salt around carelessly, it can land in people's eyes, and it can cause damage. So I don't know if you know anybody that uses Bible verses or God to slander others. Sadly, I do. And I'm pretty sure I've even been guilty of that in the past. There's another thing that salt should do, though. It should make us thirsty. As in, I want something refreshing. So what if we as a church body made a decision to not let slander and gossip enter into our mouths, and when it was thrown at us, it just bounced off of us? Let's try to make people thirsty and give them something refreshing to drink, maybe like Scripture tells us from that fountain of living water. So here's a joke, and I'm expecting a laugh. Maybe it's actually a riddle. I don't know. I haven't figured it out. But why do dogs have so many friends? I heard a why. Thank you. Because they wag their tails and not their tongues. Right? So let's try being that friendly dog and not the one who goes around and bites people. Be skeptical of people who wag their tongues and other worldly distractions. I'll give you some examples. Politicians pretend to know what we need. Entertainers give us distractions from our problems. Alcohol and drugs provide an escape from reality. Yet none of those things satisfy. Those are worldly things. Don't let the enemy get a foothold in. Tune yourself to the one true tuning fork that A.W. Tozer is talking about. Verse 4. 
the warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. This verse is answering the question in verse 3 and tells of an ultimate punishment. Let's face it, compared to God's perfection, we're all worthy of judgment. We're prone to doing wrong. We deserve harsh, harsh judgment. But instead, God gives us mercy and grace. And if we're not clear on what those definitions are, mercy is the act of withholding deserved punishment. Don't forget the deserved part in there. While grace is the act of endowing unmerited favor. Again, key on the unmerited. So those are two gifts that we don't deserve. We get a get-out-of-jail-free card for our sin and a resting place of perfection for following Jesus. I think we all understand the damage that sharp arrows can do in the uh, hands of a soldier. But that broom tree reference I thought was really fascinating when I was doing my research for this sermon. And what I found is it's actually a juniper, and a juniper is an incredibly hard and tight wood. And when people wandered across the Middle East back then, they would seek out the juniper tree because it burned so hard and so hot. And there's actually an old wives' tale that says it burns so hard and so densely that you could leave your camp and come a year later and the coals would still be warm and you could rekindle them easily. So don't miss, miss how severe that punishment for lying lips and a deceitful tongue are. Verse uh, 5, Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Woe to me is a deep and painful cry. Meshach was a far-off tribe in what is now southern Russia, and Kedar was a wandering Bedouin tribe with a barbaric reputation found along the border of Israel. The message here in our language is, I wander aimlessly and live among thieves who want to do me harm. Have you ever found yourself as a believer, well, maybe not living amongst thieves, but around people who want to do you harm? The psalm shows us that we can come to God with those feelings, and he ultimately will protect us. So an example from my own life, I go on a fishing trip with a group of guys I grew up with every year. And, uh, you know, we've all matured a bit and changed. And these are all my best friends. They're all good men, and we would all gladly die for each other. And I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that. But years ago, I had decided to try and be a disciple of Jesus. And while creating space for me to learn on that journey, I made plenty of mistakes. I continued to press on. And one of the things I learned was that there were certain things for me and certain things not for me. So one night on our um, fishing trip, one of the guys put a tape into the VCR, which might age this a few, a little bit for you guys. And when he put that tape in, I recognized that it was a tape of, shall we say, an inappropriate variety. It was a movie that I felt called I could no longer be a part of. So not wanting to create a scene, I simply told my buddies, hey guys, this isn't for me. I'm going to go ahead and sit outside by the campfire. If anybody wants to join me, love to have you. And a couple of these guys, and again, lifelong friends, started to mock me. It was soft. It wasn't mean. They're not, they don't hate me, but there was a mocking there as if they didn't like this change that I was trying to embrace. And one of the guys in the group said, hey, Leave him alone. He's trying to better himself. Why is that a problem for you? And I thought that was so amazing in that moment because that friend really wasn't a believer, but he was a believer in me. And I appreciated that incredibly. And so he came alongside and he helped me when I was feeling weak and indecisive in that moment. And I would want to be that friend for you and I would want you to be that friend for everybody else. 
So it's, it's been years. I'm not claiming credit for this, but we haven't watched any of those movies since. And I'm not calling my buddies barbaric, although there is some, certainly some truth to that. <clears throat> but I am saying that being a while, around them for a while, even though I loved them, was uncomfortable. But I was feeling called to change, and as Tozer pointed out, I had to tune myself to the tuning fork that mattered. So for you, I would ask, find friends who will encourage you, but always remember that you have God, and you can cry out to him anytime, and he will answer. Verse 6, we're almost done. We're getting there, guys. Verse 6, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Notice that he says too long here. You know what that makes this verse? It makes it a call to repent. The author's finally realized he should have moved on from this particular group sooner. He's not influencing them. They're influencing him. So God's people, when tuned to his tuning fork, are called to be in his community following his standards, not the other way around. By absorbing culture and living by this world's standards, we can become too comfortable. We become tainted and become a people who run away from peace, trusting ultimately our weapons more than our God. God wants us to see the difference between living in this world and the world living in us. It's what Tozer alluded to with Christ as the tuning fork. We're being called to set our tuning fork to him first and then resonate that tone everywhere we go. And when we do that, he will be with us forever. Verse 7, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. The author is identifying here all around him that there are people who've rejected the truth of God, and because they work under their own power and rush foolishly into decisions, they're continually at war. So most of you know that I retired from the police department a few years ago. And when I did, I went to a school called Command College. And it was an 18-month school, and it was for future chiefs of police. They were grooming us for extreme leadership. And in that process, we had brilliant industry leaders from military organizations, paramilitary organizations, and a ton of college professors to try and do everything from futures forecasting to anticipating um, what the future of law enforcement is going to look like. Well, one of our guest lecturers had a quote that I wrote down because I was kind of disgusted by it. And the quote goes like this. Every year of peace is in reality either a post-war year or a pre-war year, and it's seldom easy and often impossible to distinguish between them. So think about that. It's a very cynical way of looking at people. He's saying that people are for war and that we're either coming out of a war or going into a war. Now, sadly, I'm not saying that's untrue, but is that right as God's people? Is that who God wants us to be? You see, Jesus' mission is for us. He is for peace. Our mission here at King's Cross is to make wholehearted disciples for the glory of God and the good of others. That's our, that's our mission statement. That's our motto, if you will. And it's a good one. And so to be wholehearted for the gospel is to head up the mountain when it's tiring and scary and sometimes when it's not safe. My Ethiopian friend, he and his buddies could have taken the taxi to the top. They could have enjoyed the air conditioning, but he chose the difficult path. And I have no doubt at the end of that journey, he was rewarded for it. 
if no other way than feeling like he and his group had conquered something together, unified in their faith, strengthening their bond, and strengthening their bond to the Lord. So journeys like that, walking up a hill in what looked to me like uncomfortable clothing, are not safe and are often hard. But don't let that dissuade you from entering into that journey. As the character Lucy said in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, then he isn't safe? To which Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And of course, I hope we all know the king he's talking about there is Jesus. Jesus himself said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's Revelation 3.20. Remember when you go through these Psalms of Ascent. It took me seven minutes. You can do it. They lead you on a path that's transitional. Jesus personally climbed this mountain, both literally and figuratively, many times over. He sang these Psalms of Ascent personally as he went up the mountain. He gathered and was strengthened by community over and over and over. As fully man and fully God, he would have felt pain going up that mountain. He would have felt frustration and tiredness. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his closest confidants. He was lied about and denied by Peter, one of his closest friends, and ultimately handed over to his enemies. He wasn't delivered in that time, and you may not be delivered either. You may feel as though your life has been spent in a constant ascent up a hill, but whatever you do, Please answer the door, because Jesus is knocking and he has good things for you. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.